0: Hello, everyone, and I'm Josh with the Trauma Drama Podcast, and this is Episode 3, uh, Zero to Hero, with my friend C. Pat Lombardi, uh, a trauma nurse, a traveler nurse, ICU nurse, and former, former EMT. Uh, this episode is very important to me because I'm recording it on Monday, January 24th, and this morning, Baltimore City lost three firefighters and one is in critical condition in an ICU at this time at a trauma center in Baltimore. This hits ho- close to home because I used to be a Baltimore City provider. I got to know these people very, very well. I ran calls with them, and it absolutely breaks my heart that some of the best firefighters I know, some of the best firefighters in the world uh, can do everything right, and this happens. This episode is dedicated to my friends and family, brothers and sisters in the Baltimore City Fire Department. I just wanted to say we all appreciate what you have done for the City Fire Department and your losses hitting everybody extremely hard. Thank you for your service and all four of you have demonstrated what the patch that we wear on our left sleeve says, pride protecting people. And you did exactly that today. Thank you. And even though I'm no longer part of the department, the Baltimore City Fire Department was a big part of my life. And I am forever grateful for everything that I have learned. And I am it was a pleasure to work aside with the four of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Trauma Drama Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and today we have a special guest with us, C Pat Lombardi. R-N-B-S-N-C-C-R-N-C-E-N-W-A-P-B-L S. Oh my
1: god. That is <laughs> Please, stop. Please, stop. <laughs> Please stop. And it's uh, uh
0: <laughs> and uh, he is on the show to talk about his uh journey from EMS to trauma nursing and beyond. Um C-Pat, you wanna give a little bit of introduction
1: about yourself? So my name is C. Pat Lombardi. I uh, went to the University of Delaware. I studied biology and nursing. Um, and then while I was doing that, I worked in EMS part-time um, for one of the local fire departments and then uh, found my way into Baltimore, worked there for a little bit in the ICU. Um, and then uh, COVID kind of destroyed everybody's plans. And so I ended up uh, working with directly with COVID patients for some time. And um, when that settled down, I found my way to trauma and then uh, did a brief stint in travel nursing. And now I'm uh, getting ready to move on to uh, a different different line of work, back to the pre-hospital world. Yeah, uh, CPAT and I, we were we worked together
0: pretty frequently actually i think we were both on orientation at the same time yes we were and you almost uh assassinated your patient that never
1: happened <laughs> you talking about. uh
0: yeah um yeah well we, we we pretty much uh shared orientation uh with during around the same time i mean you've been in healthcare a little bit longer than i have uh definitely a much level or higher level of healthcare um i find it interesting that you Went from EMS to
1: the MICU, uh, specifically the MICU, because was that your first like first choice when it came to it? Actually, no. Um, when I left EMS, I was definitely nervous about leaving EMS for the hospital world, actually, because um, you know I was just so used to the the way that we ran calls and you know the workflow and um, the culture and um, all of that. And so when I decided to get into the hospital world, it was a little nerve wracking, especially going to the ICU. Um, Cause I didn't really, you know, other than the couple days that I spent in nursing school in the ICU, it wasn't very much time at all. Um, but I wanted cardiac surgery. Um, and that was just because <clears throat> good, one of my best friends um, started in a cardiac surgery unit and a cardiac surgical unit. And um, he had nothing but good things to say. He sounded like he had had a great educational experience. Um, and I wanted that same that same background, um, but it's as it so happened. The cardiac surgery ICU was not looking for uh, for new graduates at the time, and Mickey was. So I, I mean, I needed a job. So Mickey was where I landed. Um, Did you have any other options uh, as far as
0: so the institution that we worked at was a a tertiary level one trauma and academic hospital. A bunch of ICUs, probably some of the most densely populated beds for icus in the region um so you went directly to micu did you have the option to do something else other than intensive care or did you have like was did you have like the ccu that you could have done or a CICU? yeah
1: yeah there were plenty of other icus that were hiring but um you know i i initially and and you know you would think if i wanted cardiac surgery and that didn't work out that i might just go for surgical icu but Um, You know, I wanted something a little different than what I was used to in in EMS, and um, I actually put out my application to a couple different ICUs um, to see see who would be willing to take me, and uh, Mickey just got back to me first. Okay. So uh, Mickey was where I ended up, but uh, I definitely wouldn't trade it. It was great background.
0: Cool. Um, So... You came from an EMS. Could you talk a little bit about that department, like the acuity, your call volume,
1: and if that prepared you at all for becoming a trauma nurse? Yeah, yeah. So my my start in EMS actually was a a sleepy little department in Rhode Island. Um, And, you know, it was a lot busier during the tourist season, but otherwise pretty pretty quiet department. Um, And, uh, you know, I got a little bit of experience there, but, um, a lot of it was just uh, scenario based education and, um, and, you know, they had great lieutenants that, um, worked really hard on, uh, on educating their EMTs and paramedics despite their low call volume. And I, you know, I really appreciated them, but then, you know, I went down to school, uh, and ended up on a collegiate EMS service, um, which comes with its own, uh, it's own interesting spin on EMS. Uh, you know, it, it has a lot of the same characteristics of a volley department, but because uh, most of them are volunteer, very few of them offer any incentive, which is a whole other ball of wax that we could, now, we could get into. the model
0: for these two departments, the one in Rhode Island and the one in Delaware, were they BLS,
1: ALS, ALS Chase? or mm-hmm. So In in Rhode Island, it was a BLS unit. Okay. Um, with ALS chase cars that were with the department. Um, so the department, if it, if, you know, if we got out on scene and decided that we needed an ALS uh, ALS team member, then we can call for an ALS chase car.
0: So were those were they like the ambos? Were they st- like stocked ALS, and then like somebody would just hop on and they already have all their stuff, or would? The paramedic art, it just had to drag all their stuff on, from the chase car onto the vehicle. Yeah, logo. except
1: for the, except for the <laughs> drugs, um, the the ambulance was actually equipped and licensed as an ALS unit. Okay. Um, but we couldn't keep any of the medications on board. Um, all the medications and whatnot were stored in the chase car. Okay, that makes sense. And then uh, in Delaware, Delaware's uh, a little different, but but not too much. Um, all ambulances, with a couple of exceptions, are uh, BLS units in the state of Delaware, um, <laughs> oh, that's awful. That means you have to do manual blood pressures every day. <laughs> that's correct. Oh, uh, God. But, <laughs>
0: but. You know, it's funny because I, I, I like, I, I guess because I'm so lazy and I, I have been in the, um, at least in Maryland and pretty much every BLS unit in Maryland has a life pack 15 and a lot of them are even Ivy techs. Yeah. So I got so comfortable and I guess complacent that I would just like, you know, take the life pack and. In with me every single call, and it's probably good—it's probably good practice to do just in case of like you know sure. it is a cardiac arrest or something, and sure. you had no idea what you're walking into. But like a refusal, I'll slap that blood pressure cuff on, let it go, put the pulse ox in, just hit the transmit button, and it's already in my E-Med report. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just—I don't know. I guess technology has streamlined that part of the job where it's like fuck manual blood pressure. Yeah, <laughs> and it
1: would—it would have been nice. Trust me, I wish we did. But uh and there are some departments that I think—I mean, I didn't work for one, but there are some departments I believe that might have an auto automated blood pressure cuff of some type, but, um, but most of the department fire departments anyway, run BLS rigs. Um, and then the County actually offers ALS resources. So like Sussex County. So there's, yeah, there's Sussex County EMS, you know, Newcastle County EMS. Um, and they are uh, a County resource, um, just like the local police departments. Okay. That's interesting. So their
0: third Mm -hmm. service ALS chase, And I was looking at the protocols for Sussex and that's where Bethany Peach is, right? Yeah. Yep. Their EMS is extremely progressive. Like they have RSI, they have standing orders for RSIs for all their medics. They have, uh, they have like NSAIDs for like, like tortle that Mm. we don't, I think they just added to Maryland protocols as of recently. And they also have surgical crike as a standing order. They have a bunch of things that I could, I would never have expected in Maryland or, well, we have those things in Maryland, but like, not somewhere like Baltimore City where I work, Baltimore County where I work. Baltimore County, you get an EMS officer on just about everything. And Yeah, uh, yeah. So I,
1: I mean, I've heard great things about Southwest. <laughs> I never worked down there. Um, I've worked with a couple of their medics once or twice, but um, you know, I can't really speak to their service. But, I, you know, I have heard that. I've mm. heard that they are very progressive. And, um, you know, the couple of guys that I've met down that worked, came from that service were always very sharp.
0: So in your BLS services, <clears throat> did you guys run like
1: a high – like? It's probably low volume, but like serious major traumas. So, so when I was in collegiate EMS and, and in, in in Delaware, I worked for two different departments. I worked for the, uh, the local volunteer department, um, that actually had part-time EMTs. Okay. Um, you know, after I got a little bit of experience and was able to kind of hold my own and get through their FTO process.
0: Which is um, pretty much I,
1: where I am now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I uh, But I started on the collegiate side and I've always been involved with the collegiate side. Okay. I think that they, that's a really cool, uh, a really cool setup that they've got there. But, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, as far as calls go and volume goes, um, I mean, when I started... The problem with the volume with the collegiate service was actually not the, the inherent volume of the area or their district because the university's ambulance actually did have quite a large district. Um, and that ambulance, that I this particular ambulance I worked for. Were oh, you guys considered mutual aid? Yeah. Okay. So gotcha. we had a mutual aid agreement with the department. So gotcha. we would actually go in for their, um, you know, if they had a third or a fourth alarm and, or emergency and, uh, you know, all of their units were tied up, we would be their next due. Um, and so as, as a service, their, their service area, um, and their mutual aid is actually pretty sizable. Hmm. The issue when I started with them was actually being able to stay and be in service. Um, because we just didn't have enough people to operate the unit.
0: And I guess it's Um, just, I guess like having a college-based EMS is the same thing, like having a volunteer
1: firehouse. It's you staff it when you have time. Correct. And I mean, the thing was like. You know, when I started, we were in service, guaranteed you were going to be in service Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. Mm -hmm. But um, during the week, it was actually a little bit special to see a crew on, uh, you know, a crew up overnight. Um, And then... Uh, you know, during the day, sometimes, you know, if a call came in, they, you know, they'd scramble up a crew. But, um, you know, you had different levels of dedication. You had people that were, you know, willing to, like, leave class and stuff like that to staff, staff the ambulance. And then there were some people that, you know, when they were on, they were there. And when they weren't, you you didn't call them. Oh, um, and But, you know, what was neat was so when I started, we were running about 500 calls a year um that's and, not for collegiate EMS. yeah that's not bad it's That's not not bad. actually really freaking good that's better than a lot of volunteer houses in <laughs> pennsylvania good um, god and uh and i'll tell you what i just actually this weekend i went and visited um visited the collegiate service that i worked for um uh, and you i try to stay involved yeah i try to stay involved with them they're a really great group of students and um you know i always remembered when i was a student there it was great to have the alumni come back mm-hmm. and hang out with you and you know buy you dinner and you know show you that there's some, there's some light at the other end of the tunnel. Um, and you know, so you these, know,
0: these alumni are, did they continue careers in healthcare or yeah. some, did some of them just do it for fun? Like, yeah, you,
1: you had a group. So, I think mean, there was definitely the minority, the people that were there just to do it for fun. I mm-hmm. mean, there are those people. And I do know a couple guys that were actually some, a couple of my best friends were guys that just did it for fun, but, <laughs> um, you know, a lot, the vast majority of people that are in college seeking out that type mm-hmm. of opportunity are people that want to go into healthcare or into, um, you know, public emergency services in some capacity. Which, which
0: would make sense because I guess like if you're pursuing a R- uh, BSN, it's going to take four years, right, to get your to get that degree, right. And in the meantime, you can have a you know a relatively a bridge six month I guess they're six month programs so, now uh, EMT class where you can just you know hit the streets and you know. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, the, 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 ni- the other nice thing about it is that you can have, you know, people that uh, have, you know, had some experience in the field now come back and sit down with some of the BSN students and some of the pre-med, pre-PA students and sit down and just be like, hey, this is where I screwed up. This is what I wish I had done so you don't make the same mistake or or hey, you know you should consider, you know, this option to pay off your student loans when you're done or, you know, this option, you know, it's great to be able to sit down with somebody. I always appreciated it. And Uh also it's just fun to sit down with somebody who was in the service, you know, who's in the, who's working for the ambulance service before, uh, you know, before you started there Mm -hmm. and they can kind of tell you about how it was, tell you some, some war stories and whatnot. But um, I think it's funny because like, I grew up in a fire department, and then I worked for a career
0: department, and the only advice that somebody in the fire department would tell me is, don't fucking do it. (laughs) But it's nice, it's nice, nice but in a collegiate (laughs) department, at least there is that, like, support, there is that camaraderie, like, I I would never take back the camaraderie from that I had with uh, my brothers and sisters in the department. Yeah. However, I mean, I, it's just burnt out, which is another question I want to get, I want to talk to you about later. Sure. Um... But now we're, I think we're diving really deep into collegiate EMS. But uh, so the tra- back to the topic or the question about like your acuity for traumas. Sure, sure. Um, so
1: yeah, the acuity was. Um, it, I mean, it varied just like anywhere else. You mm-hmm. know, with your volume, the higher volume you have, the more high acuity things you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of blunt trauma. We didn't see a lot of penetrating. It's a, you know, it's it's not a major city. So like I mean, M- New York's M- a major city, but yeah, a lot of MVCs. Okay. I would say that the majority of my high priority. Uh, trauma calls that we went on were MVC were related um, or sports related. Okay. Um, uh,
0: do you feel like that time in EMS prepared you to be a good trauma clinician inside the hospital?
1: You know, I would say yes and no. I think that, you know, the pre-hospital world, you have a certain set of things that you're worried about. Um, Like a huge piece of the pre-hospital world is just the logistics of getting the patient from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And that's not even really a thing that you worry about in the hospital very much. Um, But I will say that working in EMS got me very comfortable around high acuity patients It got me very comfortable around patients where the story of their their case the the whole you know background of them has not been established yet and mm-hmm. that's something that I noticed going from the ICU to an admitting area was um, you know you go from a place where you know when you take report somebody tells you their whole life story you know mm-hmm. whether you want to hear it or not. Um, where you know yep. how that patient started from at point A, getting their initial injury, all the way down to today. You know they got yeah. intubated or whatever, right? But like that's not something that you get in EMS. You're the person writing the first page.
0: Yeah. um And so. And, and you may not have the complete story. Right. Sometimes it's withheld or changed yeah. from the person of the point of injury, or you
1: have to write your own narrative based off somebody's unresponsive. Right. And and honestly, <clears throat> sometimes a lot of the things that you you say in your report to the ED, I mean, that follows the patient all the way up to the. ICU. When I worked in the ICU, I used to read the notes from the ED docs and from the admitting or from the triage nurses. Really? And yeah, and I mean, you'd see what EMS said about those patients. Now, what would be really nice would be if we had access to the PCRs that were written by the EMS. Clinicians. Oh, like the EMeds. Yeah, yeah. That, that stuff is is translates up. But whatever they tell the docs, if it's something relevant, and it makes it into their note. It makes it all the way up to the ICU. Well,
0: I don't know why they shouldn't, because like we are expected to give you either a short form before we leave the hospital, or we have to print it out and give you a like a completed e report.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it should show up as a note in their, oh, yeah. in their, in their notes. It should, it should be an addendum. Yeah, be, or, or like it to, should be a note. It should be a note in their notes mm-hmm. section. Um, but, uh, you know, they, you know, it's 2022 and we, you know, the stars and satellites just haven't aligned yet for somebody to figure out how to make that happen. But, um, I mean, the EMS clinicians, especially in the first couple of days in the ICU, what they, you know, that's relevant information, you know. Thirty days down the line, if they're still in the ICU, that yeah. maybe loses some relevance. Well, but... so one of our <clears throat> one of, an anesthesiologist that both of us know very well is actually
0: working on you know the the telemetry between like at least MSP and mm-hmm. the hospital receiving like seeing like vital signs as the patients in transport. Yeah. So uh, so you know it would, that like that's interesting. Like I can transmit a twelve lead and vitals to an ED. I feel like there's times you heard when we overheard consults. They were like, yeah, we gave him Narcan. Now he's combative. We would all roll our eyes. And I feel like having EMS, especially at like top trauma centers, they try so hard to make sure like, like they're almost like put under a magnifying magnifying glass and like almost like some of the ED docs that we know. We'll do this. Some of the nurses that we know will do this. And they'll, like, you know, badger them. Why would you bring this patient here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What was your Yeah, I mean, patients? we've all been.
1: And, and on the EMS side, like, I remember being on the other side of that. Yeah. You yeah. know, I remember being on the other side of why did you bring this patient here? Right. I remember having, you know, I've had paramedics ask me, well, why did you call ALS for this case? And, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And and there's there's two sides to that coin, right? Like, you obviously don't want to abuse resources and yeah. waste people's time. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that coin, you also don't want to abuse your your lower level right air quotes or your um your bls providers into the point to the point where they're afraid to request als because they think they're going to get you know they're going to get berated for whatever yeah. they decided right i mean at the end of the day they have less clinical experience so you know if they see something that freaks them out they're going to bring somebody to trauma or they're going to bring somebody they're going to call als mm-hmm. but um yeah, I mean, those those resources obviously want, you know, they obviously trained for that. They obviously set up the, you know, the whatever receiving facility. They set up their protocols and systems to handle high-priority cases. Mm-hmm. And and paramedics learned, you know, their set of skills to take care of a certain level of acuity. And uh, it can be frustrating to feel like your resources are wasted. So I, I hear both sides of it. All right.
0: So the next question is, Did the MICU prepare you to be a trauma nurse? Because at least at our institution, being a trauma nurse was like being like a hybrid ER, ED, and an ICU nurse.
1: Yeah, I think that working in the MICU, um, you know, got me really comfortable being around um, a very high level of acuity. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the MICU MICU patients, regardless of where you are, you know, most MICU patients um, have many comorbidities, those comorbidities are usually very advanced, um, and and then they have an acute illness on top of that, um, and so there's a lot of moving pieces to the puzzle, um, and they tend to be very, uh, they tend to be very complex, and so you know you get very comfortable working around that environment, mm-hmm. um, and then when you go into the trauma environment, you know. It's a little different because obviously these patients have a completely different disease process going on. Mm-hmm. But just being comfortable with high acuity and complexity um, really lends itself to setting you up for, for really <laughs> <laughs> whatever <laughs> <laughs> for setting you up wherever you want to go. Okay. Um, yeah,
0: I think it's interesting because, like, from what I from what I found out, like. St. Agnes, which is a local emergency department here in Baltimore. They have a they have a adult ICU, they call it the AIC, AICU. Mm-hmm. They have a CCU. Mm-hmm. And then they have a PICU and a NICU. At our institution, we have a CCU dedicated just for like STEMI patients and people with like CHF. We have a MICU, a SICU. We have a CVICU, we have what, thoracic or transplant step down we have all these ICUs and then in trauma we have a multi trauma ICU we have a neurotrauma ICU we have a like a very specialized uh ECMO ICU and i think it's very interesting that like not all the, all these hospitals have these ICUs and i think it's interesting being a coming from a mickey background you have a different perspective on how to manage a patient like a somebody who just came from the ed I, f- I feel like just the thought process is different
1: yeah yeah I mean your 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 training is different your and I and, to- I
0: and I and I've seen you and I've seen you work on trauma patients you have like a sheet and you have times you have like your drips everything's labeled beautifully while I'll look at some of these nurses in the trauma unit and then they they're like lines
1: messy and like stuff that's not labeled. Yeah, I mean, some of us are victims of our own training, right? Like I yeah. like I obviously grew up in an ICU where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those things were expected and, you know, you just kind of develop habits. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that I, I, I didn't actually have a hard time with it because I think my EMS background really helped me out with that is, you know, if I had time to do those things, I would do them. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have time to do those things, and rest assured, you and I both know that sometimes you don't. Uh, I, I, didn't do them and I didn't stress over it, mm-hmm. but you know, if, if I had time to do it, I did it because I, you know, that's just how I was trained. Um, but I am a big believer that, you know, if you are a teachable person, right, If you grow up in the right environment where, you know, you see the acuity and you have exposure to people that are willing to teach you and you, you grow up in that kind of an environment, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you could take a nurse from any ICU that, that is like that and train them to work in trauma because, and, and the reason I say that is because, um, if you're a teachable person, Right. And, and you have the background to understand the basics of critical care, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have those, you know, yeah. you can't have never seen an A-line in your life, right? You need to, you need to be comfortable around the basics because that's a, that's the foundation, uh, you know, in that particular unit is, mm-hmm. you know, you better be comfortable working with an A-line because, you know, it might be a couple of weeks before you see one and then you get one and, you know, you gotta be able well, to handle that.
0: Well, in a trauma, in a, the trauma receiving unit, you have A-lines placed a couple times a day.
1: Yeah, and it—well, it depends, right? Like, sometimes, you know, just the way the, the cookie crumbles, right? You roll the dice, you might come in, you might just deal with low-acuity stuff the whole night. Falls. Depending on how the rotation people, yeah. rolls through, right? True. You know, you may not see a—you know, you may not get one of the priorities that gets an A-line dropped in them.
0: I remember. I—it was weird, because the month of July. That whole rotation, there was only two thoracotomies that whole month of July.
1: Yeah, and—exactly, that's what I mean. It's yeah. like—and, and you know, even down to, like, being— You know, if you're on the medical team, yeah, if there's a thoracotomy, you're going to be there. But, um, you know, as a a bedside nurse, you know, we're in a rotation. And if you just don't happen to, you know, land on one of those high acuity patients, I mean, it could be. It could be a couple weeks before you see an A-line again. And so, um, you know, you need to be comfortable with those basic ICU things. Mm -hmm. But if you train in an environment that teaches you to be honest when you don't know what's going on, and you had a good preceptor who encouraged you to ask questions, and that's how you learn. Mm. And you go to a place that is similar. Uh-huh. You can be taught how to do that job.
0: What was the hardest thing that uh, the concept or procedure or anything that you had trouble learning in the in the
1: in the trauma environment? Mm. cervical traction, I think cervical traction was by far one of the things that was the most uncomfortable to me and also by the time I left one of my favorite things to be a part of like the whole halo and the striker frame and everything yeah using a yeah using a frame to you know put a uh put pins in the patient's head in neurosurgery um, you know weights that halo um with sometimes a lot of weight yeah, yeah. i mean i seen them, 60 put, pounds. I mean, I've seen them put 70 and 80 pounds on that thing Whew. and uh and and Try to reduce a jumped facet. Um, that kind of stuff was obviously flagrantly out of my comfort zone when I came from the MICU.
0: I think I think um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I think even neurosurgery would say that's uncomfortable to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I Just mean, it perform. is. It is. But you know what? I mean, obviously, the nurses that I you know I worked with there. I mean, it's it's there. You know, they do that. On, they could do that in their sleep. They're, you know, it's not uncomfortable for them. They, they're used to it. But for me, coming from a medical background, I mean, I didn't do x-fixes and all that stuff the only time i saw an x-fix in the mickey was when it came to me and it was like you know patient, it was inf- it was infected and the patient had toxic shock syndrome uh, and was like dying from sepsis so i mean it was just you know we didn't get com- we didn't get comfortable with around that stuff but i will say that once i got used to it um you know i actually really i did enjoy it so one of the things
0: i want to go into it like a whole nother podcast i want to go into a podcast just about neurotrauma itself oh yeah but uh traditionally I've never heard of this, even at other institutions, but Matt pushing somebody to 85 for uh, spinal cord injuries, head injuries. Yeah. Could
1: you briefly go into why we do that? Yeah. I mean, definitely a better person to ask would be a neurosurgeon. But um, I mean, the way that I was taught was that, you know, if a patient's in a shock state and they have an injury to their, spinal cord or their brain, um, you know, you, you want to have, you want to perfuse that, um, so that the, so that there's not a worse, a risk of, um, worsening, um, uh, uh, infarct. Um, you know, if there's a, if there's an insult to your spinal cord or an insult to your brain and, um, and you're <clears throat> perfused because you're also in shock for whatever reason, um, whether it be spinal shock or neurogenic shock or uh, hypovolemic shock um, you know, we wanna hold them to a little bit of a higher standard mm-hmm. so that way those those insults can be perfused and and still not be at risk for uh for infarct. But again, like, you know, I don't I would definitely defer that question to a neurosurgeon.
0: Yeah, I I think it's interesting because in EMT school and paramedic school, totally like, if somebody has like a spinal cord injury. Uh, you should always worry about their airway because if they they might be compensating like with their diaphragm, but if you like notice that like they have diaphragmatic breathing, you know they probably have like a high C or like low C high T injury, mm-hmm. and like that's problematic because they could lose their airway, their ability to breathe. So like airway management was like you know for me somebody that has a spinal cord injury is very stressed upon. It seems like in the in the in the trauma center that like, you know, an art line and nor epi is like like the, the things that they really catch up on. Like somebody could have like, you know, a high C spine injury from like a GSW or a blunt injury and or I'm sorry, a low C injury. And they're
1: not even worried about intubating them. And that was something I've seen. I can totally see deferring the deferring it if they're if they're fine, right? Because obviously we treat the patient, we don't treat protocols, and we don't treat the monitor. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, there's definitely you know we know that uh, the spinal nerves uh, as far down as I believe it's T11, um, yeah, all the way down as, as far as T11 um, have involvement with your intercostals, which. Um, I mean, those muscles are involved in your ability to um, cough and clear your airway. So, I mean, obviously. Um, Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, huh. to have a good, strong cough and be able to, you know, have a good tone and a good chest tone to um, clear your own airway um, and cough. I mean, a lot of those things are not the kind of nerves that are gonna um, that are gonna hurt you in the acute phase. But, um, definitely run the risk of aspiration down the road or, or just, yeah. Or like, a um, you know, ongoing atelectasis and mucus plugging because you don't have a strong enough cough to clear your bronchus. So like, I mean, these are long-term things that you think of too. Like, like stuff that you would associate with people that had like, uh, chronic trachs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like, you you know, if you have somebody who's a, who's a, a quad or tetraplegic, right. And they um wait a tetraplegic? Yeah, fun fact, did you know that um the that para is a Latin root? Doesn't that mean four though? Para means two. Oh shit, you're right. Para means two, and quad is a Greek root. So you're mixing you're mixing roots.
0: You're right. oh so... yeah, you know,
1: you're right. Okay, so I heard paraplegic and quadriplegic. Yes. What the hell is a tetraplegic? Tetraplegic is the same thing as a quadriplegic, but you're using a different root. Oh. Yeah. So technically... Oh, chemistry's coming yeah. in. Yeah, with Orgo.
0: So, ah, yeah.
1: so technically, if you really want to be a <laughs> stupid nerd and like keep all the roots the same, right, and keep them all Latin, then you'd be talking a tetraplegic. Okay, fair um, enough, fair enough. Okay. It, it doesn't matter. We're okay. talking about the same thing. Quadriplegic. Uh, if you have place. somebody who's quadriplegic... Um, tetraplegic. Or a tetra- <laughs> <laughs> um Use that for now. And, uh, and people are just going to think you're a stupid nerd if you use that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I'm going to walk in. I'm going to walk.
0: In. One day with a paralyzed patient, I'm going to be like, they're just a paraplegic, not a tetraplegic. Oh and God. then <laughs> and I have a feeling one of the nurses is going to look at me like, the fuck are you talking about really yeah. <laughs> i got this from a bsn i know it's legit <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyway um anyway yeah you uh if you have somebody who has you know like qu- chronic quadriplegia um and they you know they have a an injury above t11 you know they could have issues with their ability to clear their airway even though you know, we're not talking about a high C spine injury where you know you're you're obviously worried about their straight up ability to breathe. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. um, okay. So,
0: I we'll get back into like the trauma topics in just a second. But you left the trauma life, and you know the shit bags that come along with that to do travel nursing uh tell me about that experience and uh, for the record i was gonna do uh i was gonna do travel gigs but you actually inspired me not
1: to do it (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because like you know techs we don't make great money and yeah uh, man so i mean the travel i mean obviously this is a whole another ball of wax that we could talk about for another hour right Mm -hmm. is um you know the current state of nursing as a whole and um, where things are going, but and, I do really want to get on, on the topic about burnout in a little bit. But yeah, yeah, sure. And I mean, and this might be a good segue, but nobody, nobody knows where the world of nursing or healthcare in general is going right now. I mean, we're all on the edge of our seats to see what happens next, mm-hmm. right? I mean, everybody's in turmoil. You know, nobody has any staff. Um, hospitals are still doing everything they can to avoid paying their staff what they're worth, um, and so you know and that's pretty much universal across the board unfortunately so um you know i i ended up leaving um because i wanted to you know i'd also recently gotten involved in some mountaineering and alpine climbing and you know i wanted to be able to be closer to um you know have better access to the Nature. mountains and yeah yeah and so not uh, the city life <laughs> so traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's no alpine climbing in baltimore and uh, so you, you, i mean you
0: climb to the top of a of, of, of the fucking hospital. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's then you get arrested.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get arrested, Josh. So, so anyway, yeah. I wanted easier access to that stuff. I wanted more flexibility. And I mean, when you have as much debt as some of uh, some of our colleagues have, right, and myself included, I mean, how it's hard yeah. to turn down the money that they're offering oh, travelers abs- right absolutely, now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and you know, being on the other side of it now, I can certainly say that uh, it has its ups and downs. It's not. It's not the. Uh, you know, golden goose, so to speak, to that everybody thinks that it is. Um, it has its pop, its pluses. I can tell you the money's real. Um, I didn't think it was real at first. I was like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it in my first paycheck. I can tell you it's real. It's like, like a leprechaun with a pot yeah, of gold. Yeah, exactly. It's real. But, uh, you know, it definitely comes with its challenges, its, its, its own challenges. Yeah. Um, But it was time. You know, I was like, look, the um, – the medical system as a whole not just the one that we work for but just across the board across the country the way that our our healthcare system is uh exploiting people is uh is hard to swallow um yeah. and so you know when you have the opportunity to at least be exploited and make better money doing it um it, that's hard to turn down yeah like
0: <clears throat> for me I I wanted to go work for the hospital one to get valuable education or to learn uh because I felt like my time in the streets I've seen a lot working in Baltimore City. So it was kind of like, you know, I wanted to better myself. And then two, I wanted to, you know, go go work for a place that like I could also go to school full time. And if I if I was still in the fire department today, I would have taken a twenty three thousand dollar pay cut because I know they would have paid me the same if with a two more years of experience in the fire department versus what I've had in the fire department previously whatever doesn't matter i would have taken a $23,000 pay cut adjusted for like my, my pay increases and in steps and everything and i think that's like
1: ridiculous i think that's absolutely atrocious <clears throat> no i mean there's no doubt about it like the way that um again across the board uh, you know across the nation hospitals have gotten away with underpaying personnel and continuing to put you know incrementally put more and more responsibility on their plate, um, but not give them any, not even a standard of living increase, right? Like rent has increased across the board. Yes, it has. Um, and nobody has gotten a raise to match that. So I mean, forget if we even if we just take the extra responsibilities out of the equation, it's massively unfair. I mean, it's oh, absolutely, and, absolutely. Um, <coughs> and you know, so it seems like some systems are starting to pick up on that, and are maybe starting to move in the right direction. But until we have executive level leadership that is willing to stand up for their uh front you know their front line and uh you know their boots on the ground personnel i don't think we're gonna see the uh see people get what they deserve unfortunately
0: yeah i think um i think this will mark like a pivotal change well like last year you guys were heroes but now you guys are like mortars and it's just like what the hell just happened like in one year it seemed like Healthcare has changed from something that you're looked at as like a hero. And now it's just like. Oh, you got COVID. All right, see you back in work in five days. It's like, what
1: the fuck? And, and I mean, I don't mean to be to be dark, but we were never heroes, right? Like people, oh, no. people had never been through a pandemic before. And, you know, everybody can hold up their head and say that for a certain amount of time. But, you know, when when the rubber meets the road and push comes to shove, and it's time for people to actually stand up and give people what they're worth, uh, nobody wants to do it. Um, mm-hmm. or nobody wants to find a way to do it. Um, rather the people that can do it don't want to. That, there are yeah. many, many people in leadership that uh, that are incredible, outstanding leaders. And um, and unfortunately, they're not in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, They're in the co pilot seat if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. And it's the people that are in the driver's seat at the top that need to take ownership and take care of their people. But at the end of the day, they're making seven figures and they don't care. I agree. And for me, it's like, I, I, look, I would love
0: to be a sellout. I absolutely would. But... The one part you didn't talk about your travel gig is that you went out to Colorado initially. That got canceled. You mm-hmm. went to Alaska. What happened with that?
1: Well, actually, I never made it out to Alaska. That well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. So. Yeah, that got canceled so, before I got
0: there. I'm worried that like as a tech who doesn't make as much as a nurse, I'm not making those 5000 6000 7000 plus weekly salaries that I get out there and I'm stranded. I'm a homeless man out in, well, Hawaii. I, I wouldn't mind being homeless in Hawaii, but like. <laughs> Uh, like <clears throat> New Hampshire, I wouldn't mind being homeless in Arizona either, but like still it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, It's, that's not something I want to put myself into, especially when like, if I have to spend all this money to pay for travel, pay up from for an Airbnb, even if I do get it reimbursed, whatever, I still have to pay that outright. And if the contract gets canceled, I just dropped a bunch of money that I could have used to pay for a tuition.
1: Yeah. And I can tell you that like, if you're, once you get through your first contract if you're able to put aside a, a good amount of money to be a cushion, it's, ne- I mean, obviously, everybody says you should have. You know what, like six months of living expenses in the savings or whatever, something like that. That very few of us even that can't even achieve. You know that, unfortunately, because of you know the way things are. But yeah, um, you know the general rule of thumb is what three to six months of living expenses in your savings as an emergency fund. It's never been more important than being a traveler, right? That is critical yeah. when you're in the travel world, because at the end of the day, you're an at will employee, and nobody cares. You know, they're not, they don't care if you end up out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and and the, your contract gets canceled, right? It's on you to figure it out, and it's on you as somebody who made that decision to travel to be able to handle that situation. Mm-hmm. And you know, I learned that I learned that the hard way.
0: Yeah, and um, not everybody's <clears> as absurd <throat> assertive or like you know knows as much about travel nursing as our girl Jill. Shout uh, out, Jill! We love you. Shout out to Jill. Oh yeah, Jill. She I got her on board with the podcast. Yeah, she, she, she said she'll come on. I'm like Jill's the best. And she's like, well, we can talk about or because i'm an or
1: nurse and i'm like that is perfect that's exactly yeah. what i'm having jill shout out yeah love jill yeah we love jill she's but, the uh, best yeah but yeah i mean it's it's a great world to work in there's definitely if you once you learn how to do it you have the opportunity to make a lot of money you have the opportunity to see a lot of places it's very cool um, But it is yeah one thing that i had a hard time with with it was um uh, me personally, I like to be a part of a tight team, a tight-knit team, and, you know, I like to feel like I've got my my teammates with me, and, you know, um, you don't get that with a travel world, unfortunately, because you're a guest. You're a guest no matter where you go. You're a professional but, guest. But, like, okay, so, but, I mean, you're supposed to treat your guests like your family, right? Depends on where you go. Um, I thought we, tra-
0: we treated our travelers, for the most part, very well at uh, our hospital, <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i mean this, we this did depends like oh. jill
0: she was great there's there's some that are like what the fuck are you yeah doing yeah, here? Yeah, yeah no i mean and the <laughs> thing
1: is you don't know these people right so obviously you're going to be suspicious and i can say that the tra- the facility i traveled to they had some very sketchy people come through that were not qualified or did not have the qualifications they said they like, did as i ICU nurses oh yeah really? i mean they had people that come th- that came through as an icu traveler that were not icu nurses yeah so as much as i would have loved to travel i don't I don't. I didn't want to take that risk. Yeah, I, I, I like thought. That. I thought. I
0: thought risk and reward was different. Like, paid for this semester in cash, which was great, mm-hmm. and I'm very happy that I paid it in cash. Would did I? But if could I have paid the semester in cash if I took a travel g- gig and it got canceled? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm. I'm happy I did that, uh, and I'm also happy that you got to travel. I mean, you're a very outdoorsy place. I know you like the mountains and the snow just like, as much as I love the mountains mm-hmm. and the snow. However. Uh, Hawaii would have been interesting to spend eight weeks in.
1: Yeah, no, Hawaii was great. I traveled to um, to a smaller hospital in Oahu and uh, worked in their ICU, and they were very welcoming, very nice folks. Uh, you know, they treated me well. I never felt like I was abused um, mm-hmm. more than any other nurse in 2022. Yeah, but, I mean, um, I
0: mean to, to 2021, 2022, you're going to get bent over and – Shafted, yeah.
1: so it's like more than yeah, <clears throat> I didn't feel like I was abused any extra just because I was a traveler. I mean, as a standard, yeah. most nurses these days are being uh exploited, but well,
0: after talking to a few people from Walter Reed, they have like contractors and they love their contractors because it's like you, the military, they kind of like disperse you where you're needed, and sometimes you're needed everywhere, so like they'll take already dangerous staff ratios and they'll kind of divide it up. So they rely on like civilian
1: contractors, mm-hmm. whatever. And they love their civilian, like they treat them like family. Yeah, and I, and I experienced that when I was when I was at the facility in Hawaii. I mean, I floated quite a bit because when I was first, my first probably four to five weeks there, the acuity was actually very low. Um, and so the ICU was not even close mm-hmm. to full capacity. Um, and so they floated me quite frequently up to Italian med surge. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think there was a single shift that I went up to tally or med surge and I didn't have people thank me for being, wow. There. Okay. Well, that's good. And it's uncomfortable actually. Cause it's like, I'm here cause it's my job, but it's also like, <laughs> I'm here cause you know, I'm making a happy. shit ton of money, <laughs> right, but, right, but, <laughs> they're, <laughs> but they're happy to just have extra hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're, they're, they were very respectful. I, I definitely was glad to work there. Um, well, that's nice you're going to be going back into the uh, EMS community as a
0: fly boy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie. I'm, even though I want to be like a doc or a PA, I'm kind of jealous. I like, like this is like everybody's dream job to have. Uh, Like you, you're literally going to be <clears throat> uh, a fl- like a flight medic, flight nurse. And uh, two things on that is are you excited? And then two, with the recent accident that happened in, what is it? Uh, for Darby PA. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are you worried? Does that kind of change? Does that make you a little bit more intimidated with what happened?
1: Mm, so, so to, I'll answer your first question first. I, I am excited. I'm super excited about it. I, you know, this has been something that I've wanted for a long time. And, um, you know, I just happened to get very lucky when it fell into my lap. And you worked hard um, as shit for that, too. Yeah. And I mean, it fell into my lap sort of almost. Uh, and, you know, I, I couldn't be more grateful. Um, I'm not there yet, so mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't know anything about it. I'm here to learn about it, though. I'm ready to, you know, the uh, orientation process is gonna be about three, three and a half months, and uh, it's definitely gonna be challenging. Um, there's gonna be a lot of knowledge gaps for them to fill in, but um, like I said earlier, you know, I consider myself a teachable person, and and I'm I'm here to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as far as the accident in Upper Darby PA, uh, First of all, that whole situation was a miracle. Um, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, you know that pilot really, uh, really is an amazing, amazing dude. Um, they. It's a hero. Yeah, I mean they. That's a that's a real hero. Yeah, no, that is a real <laughs> yeah. hero.
0: And um, I mean, and and not the fact that he was uh, he flew in the military and all this like the fact that he flies medevac, which is. I mean, I was going to say you don't make a lot of money flying medevac, but you actually do make a lot of money being a medevac pilot. Yeah. But like you you could, you could do something that's a lot low stress and like, you know, I mean, knowing that you have somebody in the back that needs to get to the hospital quickly and safely is almost as stressful as driving an ambulance. But only you're... The risks are higher. Yeah, yeah, the risks and are higher. Like I mean, although
1: I will <laughs> say, not to not to minimize the risks of driving on our streets and the back of an ambulance, I mean, driving an ambulance down the streets of Baltimore City is very risky as
0: well. Oh, yeah. I, I remember the, um, I remember we had trauma arrests, and we're doing CPR because we don't have Lucases. Now, just recently, the EMS officers got Lucases. We'd be doing CPR. We'd be starting lines. We'd be getting meds, and we're fucking hitting potholes, running red lights which it's in our MOPs that we're not supposed to run red lights, so we're going to forget about that part. But, oh, wait, I'm not in the department anymore, so I don't give a shit. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, we would do all this stuff barreling down the streets, and people would run red lights. We already know people run red lights, but it's part about being a cowboy. And honestly, from one cowboy to another cowboy that's about to be on a helicopter, that's like, you are like the Red Dead Redemption, or like, you know, I, 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 that's a horrible cowboy reference. You are a... You are like the pinnacle of what being a cowboy is all about. You're in a – you're in a – you're in the sky and that's yeah. freaking awesome.
1: And I, I mean like like I said, I don't want to minimize the the risks of being in the back of an ambulance, like the traffic accidents that um, – ambul- ambul- ambulances get in traffic accidents very, very frequently. I can't quote the incidents off the top of my yep. head. But, um, you know, I definitely um, – I wouldn't have applied to work with any service that I thought was unsafe. Um, but and- also, like, when a helicopter incident does happen,
0: when an air- or aircraft crashes, what are the chances of somebody surviving that uh, helicopter versus surviving a motor vehicle accident? I mean, the stats speak for themselves, yeah, right? Yeah, like- I mean, like, like it's very... no, It's not just noble, and it sounds like the badass job, but, like, actually <laughs> wanting to take that risk, which is a known incredible risk. I mean, like, helicopters are safe. This is not, like, the 1970s, but, like, you know, it's... I don't know. Like I I would I would I would do ride alongs on a helicopter, but statistically
1: I feel like as you are on that helicopter longer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but the other thing is though like right you have to consider the safety measures that, you know, each service has in place. So, That's true. you know, there are services out there including the one that I, I'm fortunate enough to go work for that um they, you know, they have terrain awareness on their aircraft. Nice. They have um, inter-aircraft, they have ability to, you know, track where all the other, um, aircraft in the area are, um, so they can avoid each other. Um, you know, they, they can see where other medical helicopters are, um, cause they may be making risky maneuvers just like you might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's good to know where they are especially, um, and, um, you know, they so they have all the, all the safety measures in place and, um, you know, I trust them. I trust them, and the thing is, when you sign up to be an EMT, right, you sign up knowing that you're going to be going into people's homes, right. That's one of the most dangerous places you could ever go, is in somebody's home, right. You so, don't know what see, I thought. never, I never, I never
0: felt fear going into somebody's home until I worked for Baltimore City. Yeah, and like even mm-hmm. then, it was still a fucking wild ride, and I love it. Yeah. Uh, oh. I wanna gift you. Uh if I don't get it, probably won't get it to you in time. I wanna gift you uh a Thousand Naked Strangers, uh A Paramedics Wild Ride to the Edge and Back um, by Kevin Hazard. It's thank uh you. it's one, your departing gift and also two, a gift for you coming on my podcast and actually and actually me you actually being willing to me annoy you for <laughs> for however long. That'd
1: but um I would <clears throat>
0: yeah, no, uh I'm really that's one of my favorite books. And it's like, you know, it's not a it's not a complex read right? uh, That book kind of grounds me back down to reality. And if I didn't give it to somebody already, I probably would have gifted it to you. I should just have like a bunch of copies. And anytime I have like a person on the show, I should just like, thank you for coming on the show. You
1: win. <laughs> you win this A book. brand
0: new book autographed by <laughs> Trauma Drama himself.
1: <laughs> not Kevin Hazard, but Trauma Drama. <laughs> you know, if you want, we can. um we can do a seg- segment here on burnout, and uh, if you want to cut other stuff out and put that in, we can do that. Okay, just, ha- just to have it, and then decide what sounds best.
0: Yeah, but we should also drink a little bit more before we do burnout because I feel like that's
1: mm-hmm.
0: part of burnout is uh, that's intoxication. Part of burnout, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, <clears throat> back one. Um, I think I think it's real. I think it's really cool. I, like I'm jealous that you're gonna fly on a fucking helicopter because not only like. Are you flying on a helicopter? But when it comes to flight medicine, you EMS is kind of divided. You have like these very, you know, liberal protocols where it's very progressive. You get to do whatever you want, but there's funding, which is a problem. That's Baltimore City. Our BLS providers can do IVs. They can do 12 leads. If they were to cancel an EMS officer for like a trauma arrest because they're transporting, they can do so. Like our like BLS Baltimore City is like. Like they can get away with a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, if you go to Baltimore County, BLS, you can't you can't do half of the stuff. But Baltimore City is restricted by funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, we still don't have powered str- uh, powered stretchers on our it's transport bad. units. Yeah. We don't have uh, video laryngoscopes on our transport units. Our EMS officers just got the Lucas, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's you know we have. So even though you have the autonomy, you don't have like the nice stuff. Um, well, in Baltimore County, every, every transport unit has a Lucas and, um, and a video laryngoscope. However, I found out that the career medic units in Baltimore County, only two of them have easy IOs. All the volunteer units have easy IOs, but the career units don't have easy IOs. I'm like, what interesting. the hell? Like, That's interesting. yeah, I mean, the, the but thing like, about... oh yeah, but on the helicopter, you have like, uh, like so uh, ultrasound, you have, uh have all these fancy stuff. So you yeah. probably have like uh, IV infusion
1: pumps. And I mean, I'm I'm still not there yet. I'm, you know, I'm I'm start I'm going to be orienting soon and so I'll mm-hmm. I'll learn all that stuff uh when I get there. would like but, to have you back on and we can talk about that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I you know, I've got a lot to learn, so mm-hmm. you know, I can't speak to that stuff yet, but I can say that you know, just from the outside looking in as somebody who who doesn't work in that field yet, um those are tools that could be, could be necessary for them. You know, they could be out in the middle of the point of, let me restart. The point of HEMS is to be able to reach the unreachable, right? Uh, um, The point of it is to be able to get out into those rural areas where their transport times are going to be long or get to somebody who might have Uh, a delayed response to the hospital because of that predicament Mm -hmm. they're in, you know, extended extrication or traffic or, you know, a weather event or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're by nature going to be far from definitive care until you get them in the air. And then it's a 30 minute, 30 minute ride, depending on where you're at, depends on where you're at, but, and where you're going. But, um, you know, those tools, I think I look at them as a, you know, not just like a, you know, oh, it's exciting to have, you know, all this um, autonomy and, you know, laterality for your practice, but more so it's just a necessity. It's, you know, it's, you just need it you know you might you know you there are some tools you might not use very often and then you know kind of like the you know like the hair traction splint like you know you may not use it very never often never put never put somebody in a hair traction splint but then you sure. know one day you might come along and you know there might you might find a use for it yeah. um and and so i think it's kind of like that you know i think that's why hams is that way you know they have those resources available to them because the point is to put, is to put them in places where they're really far from care so hms uh Last episode that I did,
0: uh, episode zero, part two, with uh, Andrew Schaefer, one of my old partners from the city fire department, we talked a lot about uh, the overutilization of uh, HEMS, at least in the state of Maryland. And I want to have a couple, well, he's a PGY3 and EM, and he's about to do an EMS fellowship. He's also a paramedic, and you've seen him a lot in the unit, uh-huh. uh, Garrett. And I want to have him on to talk about HEMS. And more specifically in Maryland, it seems like we overutilize it. I mean, you've heard like they have like three minute ETA, five minute, eight minute ETA by, by helicopter, and it we get the pre dispatch and it's a one alpha, uh, priority one alpha, and it's just like, but then like the medics or the flight team gets them and it's a two Charlie. Do you think that we are overutilizing uh, aviation? for scene responses.
1: I mean that's a big question, right? Like it, it depends on where you, <clears throat> where we're talking about. So I mean if we're talking about Maryland Then that's a very nuanced question, I think, because someone's real, you know, you've got to look at response times, position, like locations from where, you know, EMS units are responding from, Um, it also matters like what's going on with that particular incident. If it's an extended extrication and they're on the edge of that 30 minute window, it's really gonna, you know, it might be worth it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's evidence out there on that, that I'm not well versed on, but, um. I think that at the end of the day, it's important, and I and I have seen this in the in hospital world. I can talk about it in the in hospital world. I, I think it definitely is overutilized when it comes to interfacility transfers. Um, I oh, think that yeah. a lot of times um, providers that are uh, deciding that a patient needs to go by air are making that decision with very little understanding of what resource they're actually calling upon. Um, you know, and I think that's where, you know, there's a there's a new uh, a new specialty that has gotten a little bit more traction lately. The um, EMS physician, mm-hmm. um, you know, the EMS trained physicians that have done a fellowship in, um, EMS. in ems and you know i think that down the line there might be a role for them as a gatekeeper for those resources and
0: i find it very interesting because like in the state of maryland we're, I mean, we're blessed to have uh, maryland state police and then park police right. uh, and then even delaware state police which are free resources to us if we get injured or if we're critically sick stemming strokes whatever have be it we have them available for scene responses But if you're like at a community hospital and you need to go to the trauma center or you need to go to a comprehensive stroke center or a CIC for uh, intervention for your STEMI, you're going to go by private if you're unstable. And those flights are very expensive. I mean, we have people that break their femurs and just with that femur fracture are getting flown to the hospital out in like Utah and the out west, and they're getting charged $30,000 for a femur that could have been handled by EMS. Yeah. ground And I mean,
1: again, in the pre-hospital world, you know, I, I was always, I was never the one making that decision, you know, mm-hmm. as a BLS provider, I was never the one making that call and I haven't been on the other side of HEMS yet. So least, I don't, I can't speak to that, but what I can say is having been on the other side of the ICU transfers that came by air, I can say that there were many, many times where I thought to myself. This this could have come back around.
0: So, um, but, but scenario-based, yeah, I mean, I've seen it. Like, these people that are stabilized at a Level 3 trauma center that come to a Level <laughs> 1 trauma center, yeah, sure, They if they came by air initially in their initial state, yeah, absolutely, a helicopter would have been... And, I mean, there are but, some
1: ones that are, like, right, there's the ones that are the slam dunk, right, that obviously are are a no-brainer for, for HEMS. You know, if you've got that aortic dissection that, um, you know, needs to go to a facility where they have a cardiac OR and they can handle that or they yeah. have a surgeon that's confident and able to handle that situation. Obviously, that's a time of the essence is of the essence situation. Um, you know, CVA, Um, and and MI where, you know, they might be out and be very rural um, and it could mean the difference between being able to get fibrinolytics or not. That is a big deal. Um, You know, of course, in trauma, you have somebody who has pericardial tamponade and you don't have a surgeon or an ER doc that's willing to do, um, willing to handle that situation on their own. Uh, if they need to be flown to a trauma center to have that handled, then again, that's an EM, that's a HEMS I, case, a slam dunk. Well, I, I, I 100% <clears throat> agree. But however, then you have the cases where you're splitting hairs, right? <sighs> you have the cases where. It's a gray area. You may not necessarily be able, you could argue both ways. You could say, you know, well, maybe this subdural does need to be flown or maybe, maybe they don't necessarily need to be flown. You could argue about it all day long. Um, And so it's not as easy of an answer. It's a little bit more nuanced. And
0: and I'm I'm totally okay with like, okay, yeah. I mean, in private ambulance, I mean, we've seen how, like, we've been trying to get People transported out of our unit, or get people transported to our unit, but there's no transport units available. And yeah, sure they're stable now, but what if they progress? Is it better to get aviation on board for something that doesn't necessarily need the care of a of a uh, hems, but like you know could deteriorate deteriorate later? But
1: having that helicopter take them there now is better in the long run. And I think that's really where having a an EMS trained physician is a big deal. You know, having them either either available to make those decisions themselves or having somebody who has been an EMS trained physician be able to write those policies and procedures so that they can operate sort of autonomously or, you know, without having to constantly have them on at their beck and call. Um, But at the end of the day, having somebody who understands those assets and what they're capable of and, and what their benefit, their benefit drawback is, Mm -hmm. uh, the benefit like drawback ratio, um, I think is a big deal because right now a lot of those decisions are being made by people that don't understand the asset. That's true. You know, they don't, you know, there were many, many times where I received a patient in the MICU and I was like the, the doc that called for this patient to come by air just didn't understand what the asset was. And and, th- at the end and of you the guys day, were
0: a regional referral, so you guys saw, like, a lot of things that, like, you know, may just be an IMC at your facility, but is saying, an ICU at and, somewhere else. And I'm
1: not saying that they don't understand the disease process in front of them, or perhaps even the exigency of it, but what I'm saying is they also need to understand the risks that that HEMS team is going to face, right? We just saw a, uh, a team crash in Pennsylvania.
0: Carrying a right? pediatric ICU patient, yeah.
1: Right, and so you know we know that it is a dangerous line of work mm-hmm. you know and you need to it you know it it stands to reason that the that when those assets are being called upon that they be called upon for something that makes sense and that they're not in the air for no reason mm-hmm. um and so you know i feel like the um having the ems trained physician Available or or at least on board with the team to help guide those resources and help guide the requests for those resources would help filter out some of that unnecessary use. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as what is and isn't unnecessary use, I'm really not at liberty to speak to that because I'm not an in that field. I mean,
0: personally for me, uh, working in Baltimore City, working so close in Baltimore County to trauma centers, major cardiac intervention centers, and stroke centers, I never felt the need to call for aviation. I don't think that there's any place in Baltimore County that needs aviation, unless if you're in like the top part of Baltimore County and there's an extended transport time or extended uh, extrication time. But even then, <coughs> you have York, which is a trauma center, you have Baltimore trauma centers that are right down to I-83. And I, I did a, uh, like, one one particular one that we talked about last time was I-83 and Schwann Road. That's right there in Cockeysville. And it took me in rush hour not lights and sirens, 23 minutes to get from my volunteer fire station to that part. And that's not, that's kind of going around the beltway. That's not even just going down to I-83. So I can only imagine that, like, you know, it's about, it's about comparative, but like listening to it, cause I, I listened to the, uh, the fire ground channel and I listened to the consult and like, it was a pedestrian strike on 83 It was a one alpha patient was sick. They waited 30 minutes for a triple one to prep, take off, get there. But they could have been to, you know, one of the trauma centers quickly. And if they were really unstable, they could have gone to Sinai, which is a level two, which is
1: less than 20 minutes away from where they were. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes to HEMS, right, the point is to be able to expedite their transport and bring advanced resources to the scene um, where it may be necessary. But you know, if we're talking, you're waiting thirty minutes for an aircraft where you could be at the hospital in less than that. I mean, obviously we're we're see, we're missing the point here, right? Um, especially in trauma, where you know we have a golden hour to stay within, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, you know, that and that golden hour starts with the injury, so mm-hmm. you know, the time the clock's ticking, right? And mm-hmm. so, we know that the faster we can get them to a trauma capable facility, the better they're going to do. And that's
0: yeah, I mean, that's um, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I mean, the people were bashing the providers on that call, and although it's, I don't necessarily agree with them using utilization or utilizing EMS or uh, HEMS for that, I'm not gonna bash them.
1: No, I mean, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, yeah, absolutely. But let's you know, I. I never want to I, I always try to avoid doing that because again, you know, everybody's been on the other side of that and you know it's you you don't know what was in front of them.
0: I would like to bring you uh and my friend Andrew Schaefer and my other friend Eric Getz. Uh one is an Annapolis firefighter paramedic, one's a EMT paramedic or EMT firefighter with the city. Uh and then you on, and we can discuss this because we all feel very strongly and i feel like you have like a very different perspective than all of them and me about this and i think it would be interesting for like have like a roundtable discussion Particularly on HEMS utilization.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm going to stand up for provider safety first, just like anybody else in the public safety world would, mm-hmm. right? And and interestingly enough, when I started in the hospital, that was actually one of the things that was harder to get used to is that uh, provider safety doesn't always come first in the hospital. Um, so that has actually been something when mm. I was when I was getting used to it that was a little bit hard to get used to. But um,
0: maybe I'm jaded and biased, but coming from the city, I never. Had the luxury of safety, so I guess like anything is like you know the Taj Mahal compared to working in Baltimore City, <laughs> but but that's just me. That's just my perspective. And like I mean, you're working in a large academic center in uh in an urban center that has a particularly bad violence in you know drug abuse problem and that comes with its difficulties and I feel like yeah people will take their violence out like there's a big ED burnout because ED providers are fucking
1: uh, abused and assaulted on the daily. I mean you couldn't go into a Walmart or even a doctor's office and behave that way and receive service. Yeah but Um, but in the hospital you're expected to get the same customer service. But you can come into the emergency department somewhere and scream swear and you know get violent and if you have a broken femur the expectation is you're still going to get it fixed. Oh, yeah yeah um when you know if you were to go for service anywhere else you know you you wouldn't nobody would put up with that um and so you know there's this customer service piece of hospitals that is not present in public safety mm-hmm. you know if you assault an ems crew you're going to the hospital in handcuffs or, or if you're well enough, you're going to the back of a police car. You know, it's just it's not it's not treated the same in the hospital. You know, we have behavioral contracts mm-hmm. where, you know, please don't be mean anymore to our staff. Whereas, in, you know, in, in public safety, it's not tolerated. You know, it's, it's we, we, we take care of it. If, if police don't take
0: care of it, we're taking it care of it ourselves. Handled. Yeah, it gets handled. Um, Whereas like correctly it, or incorrectly.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just it's a different culture. It is. Know? Yeah. Whereas, yeah, 100%. Like, you know, in, in public safety, your colleagues have your back no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, if you find yourself in a dangerous situation, they will. Well, they will back you up. No matter what, I mean, maybe, maybe not anymore. And there, I mean,
0: there's, a, there is a brotherhood. There uh, is, and it, it's
1: not like that in the hospital. But uh, unfortunately, and, and unfortunately, things are things are changing in the public, the public safety realm as well. But like,
0: I'm, I'm used, I'm used to doing things the city way. I'm used to doing things the EMS, the uh, the EMS way. And I figured out that like, oh, I have to cross my T's, dot my eyes in the hospital, and I was just like, this is weird. That took a lot of time. And there's nothing wrong
1: to. with crossing your T's and dotting your eyes, but the thing is. You know, if you come into the hospital and you're swearing and screaming and you're violent, we shouldn't, we're not going to treat you. But, until but, you start but to it's tolerated.
0: Me. I wouldn't have tolerated exactly. that in my, in my fucking shitbox.
1: box. Now, but if we it's do. part of the disease process, that's different, right? Oh, yeah. You know, if People you're intoxicated. with altered mental status and. If you're intoxicated, and, you have an altered mental status from having a seizure. You have, you know, some neurologic p- process going on. Like. That's one thing. But mm-hmm. if you come in and you're just pissed off because we found your drugs, I'm sorry. Like, you can go out on the street and look for care elsewhere. Like, maybe someone will take care of you behaving this way elsewhere, but we're not going to do it. But unfortunately, that's that's not how we look at it. It's, you know, we're, we're, sh- we're shooting for Michelin stars here.
0: Yeah, and and, yeah. And, I, and I feel like the worst part about it is, like, working for, like, a tertiary care, a like, level one trauma center. Uh, like, literally, the end-all be-all of literally all care in a region is that you run into the problem that you can't turn these patients away. Level two, level three trauma centers, they can transfer them out to us, but we can't transfer them out to anybody else. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you thought like, no wonder that these, this hospital wanted to get rid of them so fast. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean like, but like seriously, like, yeah, I mean, sure. I might be joking, but like, I honestly feel like to some degree, they kind of just shoot these people off faster because of the way that they are acting. Yeah. Um, gonna go to a different topic. Uh, so, IV fluids. So, spaghetti water. We all know is bad uh, administering to these patients. Um, however, somebody that worked in the city, somebody so close to trauma centers and like penetrating blunt traumas, mm-hmm. such a high acuity. Like, I can't even tell me tell you how many times I've activated like trauma teams called Priority One Alphas that were actually legitimately Priority One Alphas. Um, <clears throat> from my understanding, that yeah, sure you're making you're making these people coagulopathic uh, you're, you're hurting their clotting factors. Um, I've seen these people that are peri-arrest, unresponsive, <clears throat> and they're so profoundly hypovolemic that I think if I give them a liter or two liters of IV fluid just to prevent cardiovascular collapse, that might be better than like not giving them anything at all. If I, if I can give their heart something to pump to prevent them to go into cardiac arrest so I can get them to, get them to that facility after i've stopped the bleed but they're still profoundly hypotensive i think that's better than like you know not giving them any iv fluids at all now i understand like washington county frederick county those counties where they have an extended transport time maybe a drip maybe a fluid bolus to get their uh their blood pressure up a little bit but i personally for me i think that the debate on iv fluids yeah, I, 100%. The science is there. Blood products is the gold standard. However, I think that lactated ringers is okay. I think I think it's better than nothing uh, for a pre-hospital provider that doesn't have access to blood.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you have somebody who's <clears throat> hypovolemic and you don't have access to blood, I mean... Yeah, I mean, you would you would fluid resuscitate them with what you have. Mm-hmm.
0: And, if, um, and if I start, like, large bore, like, 14, 16-gauge IVs in the field, I want to make sure that there's lines under patent when they get to you, even if they are in arrest. Because if I have fluid flowing through that line and they arrest, at least the fluid is still going through that line.
1: Sure, yeah, and you have a flush bag. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, I mean, yeah, if you, know, if you have somebody who you think that their etiology is hypovolemic and you're not carrying blood products, then, you know, you still should treat their hypovolemia. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never... Heard that you should withhold it um but again you know this would be something i would defer to you know an emergency Transition, physician yeah. or somebody that you know is an expert in the field but um you know in my experience in practice anyway if i had somebody that was hypotensive and needed blood if i if i had blood within a reasonable amount of time then sure i mean i'm not going to load them up with with crystalloid but um you know if i'm if we change the Scenario a little bit and I'm a little bit further away from definitive care, and all I have is, you know, a balanced crystalloid like PlasmaLite or uh, lactated Ringers or something along those lines. Uh, you know, you, you want to treat their hypovolemia. Um, now, of course, in the emergency department or in the ICU, if I have you know blood that's going to be up to me in twenty or thirty minutes, well, you know, we might be able to hold off until mm-hmm. we can get some blood in them. But
0: I mean, and, and even in even in the trauma center, like the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start a liter bag of fluid whether that's through a through the ranger or yeah. a level one infuser or we do it uh via like we're not just going straight to blood we are yeah
1: i think it depends on i think it depends on who you ask but i mean obviously if i'm hanging blood i'm chasing that with crystalloid um if for no other reason mm-hmm. just to you know to flush the line and get all of it into them but um, you know, I wouldn't say that every patient that comes through the doors is going to get a liter of crystalloid from me. Um, and I definitely have had physicians tell me ex- explicitly not to do that.
0: And I, and um, I've, and I've heard that too. Uh, but, I, that that's like a hospital scenario and I totally get it. I totally get why a trauma center wouldn't want to do that. But that from said, a, I
1: mean, it is pretty, you know, everybody's walking for for the most part, everybody's walking around a liter, liter or two dry, yeah. you know, and could use some fluid. I mean like, but
0: in like when shit is hitting the fan the back of that ambulance because yeah. we, have, we have a priority one who's <laughs> hypotensive now is in a junctional Brady rhythm we have the defibrillator pads on them we're waiting for them to rest and we have two large bore IVs I'm going to dump as much fluid as t- in them as possible especially when my transport time is five minutes to the hospital and they, ha- and they have a gunshot wound to the to the chest and the abdomen, I am dumping as much fluid yeah, as mean, possible. Yeah, I mean,
1: absolutely. Like, you know, there's a time and a place for fluid resuscitation with crystalloid. And if you don't have blood, I mean, it, it makes sense to me to, to resuscitate them mm-hmm. with what you have.
0: Yeah, and, and like Maryland Med- Medical Protocols, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, we no longer give epinephrine during like 1 to 10 epi during trauma arrests. Mm. Blunt and penetrating. I get why we do that. But, like, also, I think there should be a larger protocol on how we fluid resuscitate patients. Since we don't carry blood, like, I feel comfortable giving somebody a liter of fluids in the city through a 14-gauge. But somebody establishing that 14-gauge for a major trauma patient out in Frederick County, that's fine. Aviation's down due to weather. Okay, that's great. But at that point, it's like, okay, you have this 14-gauge. You're going to give them all that fluid in, what, a few minutes? then what uh, a few minutes down the road they're going to become hypotensive again you're just going to keep doing that
1: well i, I mean, think there is a starling curve to, to to look at here so you know when you're fluid resuscitating somebody right if you're if you're thinking that they reason that they are hypotensive is because they are hypovolemic then you know you can give bolus uh, after bolus 250 bolus after 250 bolus or 500 bolus after 500 bolus um until you stop seeing improvement, um, and I mean, of mm. course, if they're hemorrhaging out, then you know that's going to be an ongoing process until that hemorrhage is addressed. Okay. But um, you know, if you have somebody who you think is just purely fluid down and needs a little bit of fluid resuscitation, and they're not actually actively losing volume, then I mean, there will come a point where you're going to either you're going to you're going to get up far enough on the Starling curve where that's not gonna not going to work anymore, and you're going to be adequately fluid resuscitated. Um, So, I mean, when you give, when I give a bolus, I don't, I don't give a bolus just running in it. um, You know, uh, I don't run them wide open. You know, I usually, I mean, running fluid wide open while you're doing active care is one thing, but I mean, if I'm in the hospital and I'm giving a bolus for a specific reason to address hypotension, that's going in a pressure bag you know i'm not putting that on a pump and pump and cranking it up to 999 so, I'm not so, running in at you know wide open that's going in through a pressure bag
0: so what's the difference between kvo and what you were just talking about so
1: kvo is just a, it stands for keep vein open yeah. so yeah. that's just enough to keep your iv running open and you know usually you'll keep something at kvo as to like a flush bag to flush meds in or something like that just to keep that vein um, patent and be able to use that to administer medications as like a flush. Like
0: 10 mLs an hour or whatever.
1: Usually you see 5 to 10 mLs an hour. And then, um, I mean, wide open doesn't really translate to a specific number because wide open depends on – how high you have your IV bag hung, and what gauge it's going through, and what kind of uh, J loop or microclave you have it running through, and you know <clears throat> there's a lot of different factors that really will affect how fast that fluid is going to go in if you leave it wide open. So
0: I, I find it interesting. So like Maryland medical protocols, it says like blah 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 KVO rate. The fuck is a KVO rate? Yeah. I mean, it's So just, like, it's, it's, is it up to provider interpretation
1: at that, point? I, that I don't, I can't speak to that. I mean, <laughs> you, you can it up MIMS and ask them yeah. that. But I mean, I can speak, I can say that, you know, when I have a KVO line in the hospital, I'm running at five to 10 mLs an hour, not okay. a, you know, not a lot, not enough to make, you know, make too much of a difference, but just enough to keep that, that IV from clotting off. Um, and give me the opportunity to maybe use that IV line to administer medication if I want to. But, um, you know, I see clinicians give a bolus over, you know, through a pump at 999. And, you know, if I'm not worried what about... What does that
0: mean? Like 999 so, ml an hour?
1: Yeah, because that's the fastest that at least most pumps will run. Like the run pumps? Can... Yeah, the Alaris pumps will run. The fastest they'll run is 999. So that's a liter an hour. Essentially, minus one mL, right? You're running at 999 mils per hour. Why not just pressure bag it? Because that's what I that's what I'm advocating. For. Oh, okay, I, I, I see. Would, I see. I, I would you. pressure bag it. I don't. I I won't put it in the pump if I don't have to, uh, unless the point is to run it in over a certain amount of time. And in some cases, there might be. You know, if you have somebody who has cardiogenic shock or who nat- naturally is in heart failure and um, you're concerned about yeah, their volume, handle yeah. that volume. Then of course, you know, we're going to run in a little slower, you know, I'll consult with my doc and say, Hey, I know they've got some cardiogenic issues going on. How fast do you want me to hit them with this bolus? But if I, it's a young, otherwise healthy adult, and I'm worried about hypotension, hypovolemia, um, I'm not going to run that leader in over an hour. I'm going to mm. hit them with that leader as fast as I can. I'm going to put it through a pressure bag. So and I have the widest, widest bore IV that I have.
0: So I find it very interesting. So, uh, we've personally seen together people that come in with gunshot wounds to the chest and it sounds bad. They're hypotensive. They come in, we do bilateral chest tubes and they're not even intubated. We give them like three units of blood and they're normal tensive after that. And they're doing, their condition improves a lot. I thought that like, you know, you get a gunshot wound to the chest, you're going to get your chest cracked and go to surgery and I found out that that's not always it's the not, case. Not always a the little case. bit of blood is goes a long freaking way, because I mean, like ACLS, they teach you about arrests. You have like your H or T's in, H's H's and H and T's, T's, H's and T's, T's. T's yeah. yeah. And one of them is, uh, you know, tension pneumothorax and uh, hypovolemia, mm-hmm. and you know, you correct and tamponade. And, and tamponade yeah, you you correct the 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 tension pneumothorax. Well, if you have a if you have a pericardial tamponade, you're probably going to get a thoracotomy anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, that or I mean, yeah. a pericardiocentesis. But or a, a, have, have you
0: ever seen a pericardial synthesis in the true? No. Yeah, like I'm sure I'm sure Corey has in the uh, CVICU, but like yeah. like uh, yeah, I mean that seems like it takes a lot of time. Ultrasound. I mean, I've seen residents struggle putting in a femoral art line,
1: let alone yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure the pericardio. I, and again, I'm not credentialed, or n- nor have I ever been mm. taught how to do it, but. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure it is a blind procedure. It can be a blind procedure, but, um... It seems very dangerous to do blind. <laughs> it's definitely going to get you sweating, that's for sure. It's definitely going to sweat. But uh, You know, I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one case that I have seen come in with pericardial tamponade, they went to the operating room.
0: And they probably got um, a sternotomy. They,
1: I, I mean, I didn't follow them after the case, but, um, I know that they did it, whatever they wanted to do, oh, they I'm did saying. it in the OR. Um... Oh, about oh, the volition yeah, yeah. of that. Yeah, well, yeah, right. So, so like these fa- families obviously want us to do everything and, and we will. And, you know, there are lots of people out there that say, well, we shouldn't. We shouldn't do all this for for these people. It's 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 futile. Mm-hmm. I see two sides of it. I see one side in that I agree with that. I see there, you know, there are definitely cases where I've been like, what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this? This feels wrong. And then there are other times, though, where I'm like, you know what? The people where it matters, right? The people where it's like, oh, no, we need to do this for them because they're young. They're otherwise healthy. This is the fucking big one. This is it. This is why we exist. This is what we do. We wouldn't be that good at it if we didn't do it a million times. That's true. That is true. And so, you know. We, We perfected the trade. Or we no, we came as close to perfecting the trade as you can. It's never perfect, but you can't get good at doing a thoracotomy unless you do them
0: and doing it as fast as we do. Like I've seen the
1: chest open in fucking seconds.
0: I I, like I've seen. So Marty Lyric, he's a uh, Georgia, South Carolina uh, emergency medicine doctor, and he like records procedures all the time. They're still doing compressions as they're cutting into the left intercostal space, like. God damn it! I wish like we could talk about this on the fucking podcast. This is fucking awesome. Like they're still like doing compressions up here as they're cutting into the chest. Like fuck it! Like I'm doing compressions and they're like stop compressions and then like I step down and like before I could even step down off the stool they chest have the they, they have the hammer and chisel fucking hammering away at the desert Forget the, that fucking sound. I fucking tick, love tick. it. And it was great coming in as an EMS provider because it was just like, yeah, we have a trauma rust. We were doing CPR, and then they're like, you never
1: fucking forget that. And then and then
0: and then they're like, and you hear boop 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 from the fucking monitors, and then we're like, hey, we got cardiac activity. Let's shock. And they're like, let's go to the OR that's where that ends most likely i I, i've seen it as a hospital provider and there's 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 people die but like you know from an ems provider we got them there they we got them dead we brought them we got them to the hospital we brought them back uh, and they got them back to life like that's a fucking amazing feeling as an ems provider i mean now it's like oh well they had a thoracotomy done at at the end of
1: the day right when the rubber meets the road and it fucking matters um (coughs) the only way you're going to be good at it is if you do it regularly. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's that's kind of fucked up especially to the layperson that doesn't understand and you know they they it almost alludes it almost suggests that people who it's futile to do it on are like practice. And that's that's not the way it is because you know every case every time they're obviously doing their best.
0: We do it we do it because we actually believe that the, what we're doing is going to but, save their life.
1: But if we didn't have that frequency, if we withheld it more often, we wouldn't be as good at it mm-hmm. as when it when it mattered. No, so I don't know. I I see both sides of it. It's a difficult ethical question. It it, it,
0: it it There's a big gray area, and it's something I would hope that I could talk about later, sometime in the future. I don't know if I can talk about it now, but like I'd like to try to find the right people to talk to. Um. Okay. So, okay. So, coming from the MICU to the uh, to the trauma unit, uh, how has uh the processes changed, like such as laboratories, uh, like. Techs pretty much send labs. Yeah, that's training. unheard
1: of in the ICU. Yeah, At least yeah. the ICU, let me rephrase. That's unheard of in the ICU that I trained in. Mm. Um, I have worked in ICUs uh, as a traveler that the techs did draw labs and it went fine. But where I trained, the text did not do any labs. Um, and, you know, I think Tex probably
0: also didn't do ISTAT in the tegr- uh, thromboelastograph.
1: They didn't even do blood glucose. They could not even do wow. a D-stick. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, that was all on your, on your bedside nurse to handle. Um, so, you know, it is very different. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it's one of those cases where, uh, the objective is speed, right? The objective in trauma is to keep everything under that golden hour, right? We have, we've, we've got bigger fish to fry. We've got things to handle that, um. know we've got to get to in a timely manner and so Mm -hmm. you know the whole process is built for speed um and and i i think that they're just they're addressing different needs um i i think that you know is it necessary to make the bedside nurse draw all the labs all the time and not do finger sticks no um you know i understand you know if you have a if you have an iv insulin infusion you know that's a different story Um, you know, if you're, if you have a fragile diabetic that just came out of DKA and you just got them off their insulin drip, that's a different story, you know? And also it does make sense for the person that's titrating those infusions and making those decisions to be, you know, be the one doing the point of care testing. Fair enough, yeah. But, but I mean, routine finger sticks that are, you know, Q6 hour finger sticks on your average diabetic, give me a break. But on the flip
0: side, you have at least in our unit the techs were responsible of running an Mm istat and running a a tag and i you know what and that's gonna lead into my next question is what's the most interesting because i that's pretty much sums up my answer what is the most interesting thing you've learned during your time other we already covered like the most challenging that was c-spine and uh, traction Mm -hmm. but uh for you, what was like the most interesting thing, like, you know, cerebrally that you've learned during your time in the trauma unit?
1: Um, honestly, I think uh, going over burns is uh, cerebrally pretty difficult, uh, a difficult concept. Um, especially you know, going over burns, it, burns are hard because uh, unless you worked in a burn ICU or you worked in a, a, a burn facility where, you know, they routinely saw burns in the emergency, the acute setting, um, you don't see it a lot. Um, you know there is the formulas. You know there's the there's the Parkland formula, um, and and it's you know when you first get introduced to it, it's not very easy. The rule of nines also not necessarily no. the most intuitive no, until not. you until you learn it until you practice with it. Mm-hmm. But again, it comes down to practice, right? Yes. The more you do it, if you practice with the Parkland formula often, then it's gonna it's gonna come to you. But uh, you just don't see it a lot, um, and. You know, a lot of burn patients also are victims of trauma, um, and so they end up with kind of both things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find
0: that fluid loss, which is very common. in And there's – yeah, burn,
1: burn patients are complex, especially if they have widespread burns. And so um, I think that that was probably one of the more difficult things for me, especially coming from a MICU where – you know, we didn't we didn't see that. that
0: and in like West Baltimore has its own challenges. You have people that are called in house fires. They jump out the window. So protocol says that trauma trumps burn. So we're transporting to the trauma center before we transport to the burn center. So we have people with who jump from a second story window that are a trauma, trauma activation. We transport them to the trauma center. It might be trauma negative, but we still got to work them up. We still got to I mean, manage them as a burn patient.
1: That's the thing is like when you work in an emergency... Uh, admitting unit of any type, an ED or what have you, um, you you have to be a jack of all trades. That's Mm -hmm. the point, you know, is, you know, you could have a trauma patient that fell down two flights of stairs, but guess what? The reason they fell down two flights of stairs is because they're having an MI. So, I mean, you have to be able to juggle those things. I mean, I think maybe my second or third week off orientation, I took care of an MI. Um, And so, I mean, it's, it's a thing. You have to be able to be a jack of all trades. Um, That's fair. And and even with you know even with pediatrics, sometimes you see that come through the door too.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So my favorite thing that I've learned was to tag the thromboelastograph. That mm-hmm. is a rabbit hole that I went down, and I think it's amazing. I think within like you know 20 minutes of a patient walking through the door, you know if they need calcium, if they need you know uh, factor factor what factor eight, factor nine, whatever it is whatever the f- factor roman numerals there factor 13 whatever whatever it doesn't matter uh the fact that if they need uh you know cryo precipitate yeah and uh <clears throat> to treat these patients to treat these like if they're on if they're on blood thinners we know like hey uh this patient's on heparin or if they're on Eliquis, and we know how to like let's let's run a tag and we can see on a visual chart and we can also see numerically how to treat this patient and i think that's phenomenal i think that's absolutely amazing how we can um you know treat these patients i think you see a lot of providers that are still not super comfortable with it um, well but but a lot of institutions don't have tag yeah like perfusionists run tags uh intensivist in- interpret tag even the trauma surgeons don't like uh they're more f- they're more familiar with running a tag versus the and i think like you know that's a rabbit hole I dug down. I love thromboelastograph and elastrographography, I guess. Uh, and I also love the I I love point of care. I think I think point of care laboratory results are you know the the paramount of what we should do as uh, providers or as uh, clinicians. And you know that can really make or break. Like I remember I asked Corey once, like, hey, do you want me to run a uh, an I on this patient who has been. Super hemorrhaging. And he's like, no, because the I stat for the iCal, because I was like, do you want me to get a calcium in an iCal for this patient? He's like, no, that's not going to be accurate. Let's just let the labs get it back. It'll be like a few minutes. It only takes a few minutes longer to me. Okay. He's a nurse. He has this, he's been doing this a lot longer. He's also a CVICU nurse. So like, that's like, you know, you know, the memes say like, if you, I became a CVICU nurse to become a nurse practitioner or, Hmm. or a a CRNA or whatever, Mm. like whatever, I don't care doesn't matter to me, but I mean, ultimately it does come down to like, uh, I mean, would you rather have a ballpark estimate? That's pretty accurate, like 99% accurate versus like, you know, something that takes a little bit longer. And I, I would much rather have something that I can treat my patient right then and there versus something that takes a little bit longer. Yeah. I
1: think it depends on the case, right? It depends on what you're looking <clears throat> for. So, you know, have, being able to do a point of care, uh testing in the field where you don't have an option versus um you know being in the hospital where you know if we're talking about "Hmm, excuse me if we're talking about calcium repletion right in the setting of large volume of blood blood products being given well the concern is what the concern is hypocalcemia right that you're going to give them enough Blood product with That's citrated citrate to chelate all that calcium out, um, and then potentially you could see cardiac uh, dysrhythmias or cardiac instability. Um, I think that you know it depends on what the speed, what the what the case is. You know, how fast do you need to have that answer in front of you, uh, and is it going to matter whether you have that answer in two minutes? What does it take? Two minutes to get a an two minutes to get an eye yeah, two, uh,
0: yeah, two minutes to get
1: a uh, chem plus eight plus. Chem trauma. eight, yeah, to get an ISTAT chem eight, versus the maybe ten or fifteen minutes, twenty minutes that it takes to get it down to the lab, Depe- depending on how busy the lab is, too. Of course.
0: I mean, we've had times where we've the lab had times is down. Where it yeah, took,
1: yeah, we've had times where it took over an hour, two hours. I remember
0: one night I literally ran around just doing ISTAT on yeah, everybody because yeah. the lab was down.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely had some nights where I mean, I was like, where the fuck are my lab results? But. um Especially waiting for a troponin. Like, uh, I figured out
0: that there was, like, a cartridge for the ISAT that does troponin. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, and I mean, again, there's, you know, a good example was when I started in the NICU. Mm -hmm. I expected, I was expecting to come in and see us use ISATs for ABGs. But the thing is, you know, outside of an acute event... Right, the majority of the time we're doing routine ABGs. We're making ventilator changes, and then we're doing ABGs, and then we're making ventilator changes, and we're doing ABGs. Um, and you know, those cases it doesn't need to be done at the point of care. And I was, I, I that was something I learned.
0: So, so my question to you is, like, somebody who's been acutely ventilated for a few hours coming from an outside facility, they come in and do you think an ISTAT ABG is important? in that circumstance they just came in and you know they've been on a ventilator for a few hours waiting for transfer to our level one center do you think a ice stat is important in that circumstance
1: um i well it would depend on how stable they are at that moment you know if if, if i'm worried that they're unstable and that um you know i want to make a change to their ventilation mm-hmm. because i'm concerned that they're acidotic and that you know we're under ventilating them well you know <clears throat> maybe i would Maybe I would want an ABG then to see what their gas looks like or or another case, actually better case. Better case is like, let's say I have a sleepy looking patient on BiPAP and I'm considering intubating mm, them, you know. Like the rest respiratory acidosis. Right. From, that might yeah. be a case where I want to see what their ABG looks like before I start, you know, pulling out the laryngoscope because if it's not an acidosis and it's not a, you know, a hypoventilation, um, hypercapnia type situation, you know, I might say, whoa, 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 let's put the brakes on intubating this guy. Unless of course they are not maintaining their airway, in which case it doesn't matter. But you know, what I'm saying is, does the piece of data affect a decision that I'm going to make? And does that decision that I'm going to make have to be made right now? Or is it a decision that can wait a little bit? Like delayed
0: a little bit. Yeah.
1: And so that's kind of the way that I look at point of care versus the, um, versus the lab, and, and it really just comes down to, you know, what am I going to do with that piece of data? Um, and then how um, how urgent is that decision? And if that decision is critically urgent, then that piece of data is urgent, and then I need the iStat.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I guess for me, like, my first week being a tech, or, mm-hmm. no, my third week of being a tech during orientation, the first two weeks was learning how to stock rooms, learning how to do shit. Uh, this uh, third week was I'm actually, like, setting labs off, and labs took forever, and I was getting yelled at. Ariel was getting yelled at because labs weren't the labs didn't come back and they mm-hmm. thought that I screwed up. You waited or screwed yeah. up the paperwork or something. But it wasn't. It was yeah. just the lab was behind, but I was a scapegoat because it's like, you know, that's the easiest yeah, thing to do. Yeah. <clears throat> that's not fair. That's not fair. But but, but I, I get it. I mean, it's it's easier to point fingers at somebody who's brand new and like, you know, it's something that doesn't happen as frequently as like, you know, if labs were messed up all the time, I get it. But like, you know, I I, I do I do understand that. Like, I'm brand new and it's my first day signing labs and there was, a, you know, because Because Murphy's Law and I'm the worst of luck there is in the fucking universe, that you know, I labs were
1: you know just delayed. So, and again, uh, if you know, if you have a case where the lab is super backed up. I mean, by all means, fucking run around the unit and use the iStat. Well, so that's and what we did. I, that's been and, done. And, and
0: it was amazing because we used the iStat and we used it on multiple patients. And I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. I guess for me, coming from a pre-hospital like provider, like that was unheard of. Like, yeah. Being able to like, you know, take somebody's blood and put it onto a little cartridge and then getting results. Like, that's amazing. I love the iStat. All priority patients. I've had the iStat st- sitting there on the, on the uh, priority cart.
1: Sure. Because I thought that was, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, what it, what it comes down to is it's a great tool, but what it comes down to is what is the piece of data you're looking for and why do you want to see it? And what are you going to use that piece of data to, to decide? And is that, does that decision need to be made right now? Does it need to be made in an hour or can it be made in 12 hours? Fair enough. Um, You know, and I would say that, you know, of course, if I, given a patient two massive transfusions and they haven't gotten any calcium, I'm going to empirically probably give them calcium. But if they don't, they don't have any and calcium. We, and we do that. And we do that. Yeah. We, but, we empirically um, give people calcium. You know, but if somebody comes to blood. me from another facility and maybe they've received two MTEs and I don't know if they've gotten calcium, that might be a case where I want to know. But more so, it might be like, okay, I'm starting to see ectopy. Right? I'm starting to see cardiac instability. Now I might not want to wait. For the lab to 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 run that now, I might want the ISTAT right away, so I can just do it at the si- at the bedside and decide if I'm going to give calcium or not. But also, that may be a case where I'm just going to give the calcium empirically because you have enough evidence, and that's and that's where you know I'm not making that decision. That's fair. That's where you you know you need the nuanced education of a critical care and emergency physician to look at that situation and decide, well, are we going to just empirically give calcium or do we want to wait and see the results? And is there a reason for that?
0: That's fair. Um, I 100% agree. Well, Pat. I think it's been great. I really enjoyed your time on the podcast today. Uh, I want to have you back on for multiple episodes, one regarding burnout, one regarding your time as a HEMS provider in the future. And I really am grateful that you came on tonight. Uh, I think that I've learned a lot about your perspective, and I'm hoping that people will take a look at this as interesting perspective
1: from a trauma nurse. Yeah, of course, buddy. Anytime. I really appreciate you having me. You know, the only way we're all going to learn is if we all talk to each other and share share our experiences. So happy to be happy to be with you tonight.
0: Thank you, CPAT. Uh Well, this has been it for the Trauma Drama Podcast. I'm excited for the content that we're going to be coming out with very soon. We're going to have some paramedics and some physicians on the show, and we're going to get dive into more clinical topics such as tag and coagulopathy and calcium and trauma and a bunch of other topics that I find very, very interesting, and I hope you guys do too. This has been Josh and CPAT with the Trauma Drama Podcast. I'll see you next time.